Psalms are not chapters, by the way. Please don't refer to the Psalms as, let's turn to chapter 51. <laughs> These, this is a songbook. This is a songbook. These are individual songs. These are not chapter divisions that translators put in like other books in the Bible. But these, these are collected 150 songs. This is the hymn book of the Jewish people. Now, last week, we talked about Psalm 22, which is the song of the cross, so in line with the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk about the song of confession, the song of petition. It has been said that this particular psalm is probably the crown jewel of the 150 psalms. I, I don't know about that. There's some other great psalms. Uh, 23rd psalm, psalm, the very first psalm. But I'm talking to you about Psalm 51, number 51 in this songbook. Now, when you get there, and even if you look at, at uh, the psalms following this, at 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, some of them will start the same way, just like this one. They'll start with this. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Now, what is that? That's a prayer. So many of the psalms that are written are really prayers put to music. And this, this collection of songs that we have in the middle of our Bible, those 150 psalms, that songbook is about 3,000 years old. That's how long this songbook has been put together. And so many of them. And if you think about it, how many songs can come to your mind that we've had, that we've had introduced to, whether it's a hymn or a more contemporary song, that is really kind of a prayer put to music. How about Fanny Crosby's song that goes like this? Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. It's a prayer. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. That's a prayer, right? That's a pretty good prayer, right? And you might have songs later on like uh, what um, Eddie Espinosa wrote, Change My Heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change My Heart, O God. May I be like you. You are the potter. This is a direct song to the Lord for something the songwriter is saying about himself. And we kind of step into that and can sing. In fact, I, I do uh, edit songs throughout the course of, of a worship service because I just make it sound like I want it to sound. But it's just me there. I don't even sing loud enough to mess Brenda up. But it's, it's us making, if we can make as much as we do here personal, I believe we will leave here different every time we come here. If we can connect with whatever's on the screen or whatever we have around us, if we can connect to it personally, not externally, but internally saying, Lord, you're speaking to me. You're saying something to me this morning. We will not leave the way we came. Because he will speak to us. Like Psalm 22, Psalm 51 is 3,000 years 
of age. And even Brown Bannister put the middle part of, of this song, Create in Me a Clean Heart. Beautiful song. The setting of this song, if you have whatever Bible you have, if it's a King James or NIV, it has this heading above it that explains what was the motivating setting for David to write this. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But the setting is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to take you through that to read it. We're going to read this psalm here in just a little bit. But let me just uh, read the first verse in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. That's how it starts, right? That evening, I'm just going to recap this. I'm not going to read it. That evening, David got up. I guess he couldn't go to sleep. He walked out on what we would call a patio. And Jerusalem, the entire city, is on a hill. It's on a mountain. And so everything is built. So the houses are situated. You know how houses are on mountains. They have this, like, one story in the next further out is like two stories or maybe three stories. So they walk out on what we would call a roof on level ground, but it was kind of like a patio. And he saw that night a woman taking a bath on her patio down from him. He was taken back by her and sent someone, says, find out who she is. And whoever brought the news back says, this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent for her to come to the palace, the king's residence. And he had a relationship with her that night. She later went back to her home, but days, maybe weeks later, she realized that she was pregnant. And she sent just a simple message back to the king, I am pregnant. The problem one of the problems with that, among other problems, was that her husband was away on military maneuvers, as you heard from verse 1. He was one of probably what we would call special ops. He was one of David's mighty men. Now, remember, when he found out her identity, he knew that Uriah was her husband, and yet he sent for her anyway. So with her husband being gone, it's simple. There's a problem. She's pregnant. So he summons, he sends a courier to where the military activity is going on and says, I want you to send Uriah the, the Hittite back to Jerusalem. And so he just talks to him and asks him how things are going and, and he dismisses him to be able to go home and be with his wife. And then he finds out that Uriah is a very honorable man. He refused to go into his own home and sleep that night. So David uh, tries plan B. 
he proceeds to get him drunk one night. Now, the story just seems like we're talking about someone else, doesn't it? When you know David, when you know other things about David, you're, you're like, what, what, is, what is this going on with him? And he thinks if he gets him inebriated and then sends him home, then maybe he and his wife can have a relationship and the pregnancy can be accounted for Uriah's as the father. Still, he's not so drunk he loses his honor. He refuses to go into his own home and sleep that night. So David, this is where it really becomes hard to imagine that the calculation, but once you start down this road, it just kind of like must swallow you up. So David writes out a special order, a sealed order for Joab, hands it to Uriah to take and deliver to the general, Joab. He's carrying his own death wish because when Joab, Joab opens that special instruction letter from King David, he tells him he wants him to put Uriah in a vulnerable place in warfare and withdraw the supporting people around him away from him so that peradventure he would be killed. And that's exactly what happened. He's killed. And word gets back, Bathsheba goes into mourning for her husband. And when that mourning is over, David takes her in as another wife. And this is where that title that you see above Psalm 51 kicks in. Because chapter 12 is where things begin to unfold and the exposure comes. But it says this. It might say it differently in the NIV. I think it does say something in the NIV. They kind of take it a little bit further than the actual wording. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's more of a literal rendering of what's there. That, that now David is writing this song after Nathan confronts him, Nathan goes to him after he had been with Bathsheba. So Nathan, I'm, I'm not going to read chapter 12, but in fact, probably a lot of people in this room would be uncomfortable if I read everything in chapter 11 and 12. It's one of those sections in the Bible, you just, just read it. <laughs> just read it. One, one of the neat things about the Bible that you can say, there is no masking of the heroes in the, in the Bible. There's no, like, let's just, let's just let Peter deny Jesus three times, but could you leave the cursing off? <laughs> you know, if, if the Bible was just being constructed by the people that was in it, they would like, could you just kind of like not say that? But everything was just wide open. What David did is just a whole thing is exposed. And Nathan comes to him in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. And uh, he, he begins to, t- he uses a parable. He begins to tell him a story. And it's a story of, about a poor man with one little lamb and a rich man. And the rich man 
decides he'll just take that poor man's one little lamb that was the, the pet of the family and, and just kill it for some guests that's uh, coming over to the rich man's house who has lots of resources. And the more he tells his story to David, the, the more David becomes angry at the injustice of it all. And when he finishes telling David's story, David is incensed and said, that man has to be brought to justice. And that's when Nathan said, you're the man, David. It's exactly what you've done. And then he shifts to this prophetic voice, thus saith the Lord. And the Lord begins to enumerate all of the things. He's really telling David, says, you were poor one time. You knew the value of a little lamb because you was a, a shepherd boy. You lived in a poor area. Nobody thought anything about you. He says, I took you from that. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you whatever you wanted and would have given you more. But you took a man's wife. And the Lord expresses his his disappointment with him and, and that he says, you have really rejected me as, as the Lord. David could only say this. He said, I've sinned. I like what Chuck Swindoll said about this, about the grace of God. As soon as David said, I have sinned, Nathan said this to him. The Lord, you're forgiven, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Chet Swindoll says, you know what grace means? Grace means that God won't kill you for what, for what you've done. Even though, how many commandments of the ten did David break there? Two especially had death. As the consequence. So God was being merciful to him to say, I'm not going to require from your hand what is just. I will forgive you, but there's a consequence to what you did. And one of the consequences that Nathan said that the, the sword that you introduced to Uriah through the hands of the Ammonites, that sword will never depart from your family. And you can read from 2 Samuel 13 on, and David's family was beset by problems the rest of his life. A son having incest with his half-sister with a daughter, one son trying to usurp the kingdom from him, a son being killed out of that effort to have a coup, right on down to when the man is on his deathbed and there's this, there's this jockeying for who's going to replace him and he's having to talk to his wife Bathsheba about making sure Solomon is the one that follows him. All through the rest of his life, his sins were forgiven, but the consequences were there all along. But it says this, and I can imagine that when he gets to this, He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. And he starts writing. He starts writing a song after Nathan confronts him. Now, I don't know about you, but that would not put me in a songwriting mood. 
But he starts writing this song from his soul. And then in verse 2, I'm, I'm reading this to you. It might be from a little bit of a different translation. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He'd already asked the Lord, have mercy on me, O Lord. And he talked about blotting out his transgressions from his loving kindness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. He's, he's writing out a confession here, but he's, he's going to sing it. And he's going to leave it for other people to sing about his worst moment in his life. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is a lesson of true repentance. And it's not like words to go by. It's by what is a truly repentant heart. It's not what we say. It's from the heart that it comes from. David could have blamed Bathsheba. And in today's world, he would have blamed her. He would have blamed everybody but himself. He would have blamed his family, his, his wife or wives. He would have pointed the finger at everyone but himself. But he doesn't do that. He owns what he did. And he could have said to Nathan, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I'm the king. You don't talk to me like that. He could have done that. He was, he was king. He was a monarch. That's why he, he could have whatever woman he wanted, and he stepped over a line with Bathsheba. But he, owned, he, he confessed, yes, it was, it was my sin. And God, it was a sin against you and you only, really, because everything else that I hurt belongs to you. So in essence, all I did was against you. And this was his prayer. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, my mother, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Folks, we can never legislate out sin. We could not pass enough laws to make people not to want to do something bad because it's that sin nature. And he said, I was born with a nature that at that point I gave into. It's about me. It's about what I wanted. And he's confessing this. He says, Lord, you desire truth in the heart. Verse 8, the first 12 verses is really part of the confession of David. I mean, he lays his life out. Verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. You know, one of the great pains that David had was when he was told that the baby that he conceived with Bathsheba would not survive. And you know the story. Baby was born, was, was not in good shape. 
And for seven days, whatever the, the things that people could do back then to keep a, a newborn alive, they were working feverishly. And he was in his quarters on his face before God, fasting and praying that God would change his mind. He could not eat. The, the burden of what had happened, it was starting to be real to him. What he, what he knew that he was facing was a consequence, and, and this was one of the consequences he just could not put his arms around. And for those seven days, he was out of sorts. No one could do anything for him. He refused to eat. He refused to have anybody come to his side to help him. Everybody stood back wondering if he was cracking up and afraid to really deal with him. And even when the news of the baby's death came to those that were watching the king suffer like this, they were hesitant to tell him because they didn't know what he would do. If he acted this way with the baby still alive, what is he going to do in the ba- when the baby dies? And he notices that they're whispering off to the side. You can read it. And he looks up and he asks him, is, is he dead? And they said, yes, king, he didn't make it. And then he does the improbable. He gets up, washes his face, asks for something to eat. And they think, well, this, is, this is, should be the other way around. You should be more in the depths of despair. And, they, and they have, they're brave enough to ask him, says, you know, what are you doing? You know, you was like this. Why, why are you washing and why do you want something? And he says, well, he's gone. I was hoping that God would change his mind, but I can't do anything else now. He can't come back to me, but I can go to him. And somewhere in all of that, he writes this stuff. Hide your face in verse 9. Hide your face, O Lord, from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. It's the second time that David said there's a list, just like I recap, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this that he did that was way out of line. But he was like, Lord, go through every one of those things and strike them off the list. Remove them from the list. Remove them from being against me. He says that twice. Blot out all my iniquities. Mark them off. Blot out my wrong. Remove it, O Lord. And then verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David knew that he had gotten way off track. And he knew the reason was his heart wasn't where it should have been. You know, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, and one of the, somebody told me one time, says, you know, Bathsheba probably thought that the palace up there was within view, and, you know, that discussion was given to me one time. I don't know. Who knows that? <laughs> But it could be that she thought that nobody was up there because the army was out there, and usually David is out there with the army, right? So let's not, let's not go there in, in these you know, hypothetical situations. 
But one thing we do know is that David should have been with the army and he wasn't. And later on when, when there was a report and Joab said, we're, we're about to conquer this city and we really would like to have you in charge, David gets up, gets on his armament and takes off and he's in the battle where he should have been. So he knows, he knows when he's praying this, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Do something inside of me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I'm almost hearing David says, I can't endure any of the consequence of my sin, but I can't even fathom not having you. Please do not take Yourself away from me. I will have nothing for sure. And folks, I think we'll go a lot further in the Lord if we come to that conclusion. I can, I can lose everything that's imaginably precious to me, but I cannot lose him. I cannot lose him. He has to be the crown jewel of my life. I may have a lot of other great things going for me, but he is absolutely the greatest pearl of great price worthy of any sacrifice you have to hang on to him. If you lose everything else, hang on to him. And that's what David is saying here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I'm thinking probably David was like, you know, this is, this is heavy stuff. I could use a little joy here. And uphold me by your generous spirit. No sweeter words than these. And we might say, well, I've never done anything like that. No, you and I may have not done anything close to what he did. We may not be like the woman in John 8 either. But we may be like those surrounding her with rocks in our hands. We may not be the culprit but we may be the jury ready to pronounce sentence. And we need to remember what Jesus said to them. Y'all can start throwing stones at her when one of you can say you don't have any sin in your life. Start, start throwing if any of you don't have. I'm just saying there's things that we, we might do, not do the external things. But if there's anything that should get, should get our attention is that we need to be so protective of our heart when we read this story. So protective of what we value. David anticipates that his, his, this colossal failure on his part. It, what he says after this, after verse 12, is amazing. <laughs> because he's kind of like, Okay, maybe something good can come out of this. Listen to these words. He finishes the song, and he doesn't finish it with like gloom, despair, and agony on me. Okay, he's, that, that's you know he's already been there, but he's thinking, thinking, and he's writing. Then I will teach transgressors their ways, your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. After I've gone through this, this is, I think this is what he's saying in, in 13 through 19. I really believe this is what he's saying. When I've gone through this, maybe somebody watching this can say, I haven't done anything that bad, but if God can restore him, he can restore me. 
That's when he says, I will be able to teach transgressors your ways and, and sinners shall be converted to you. He said, deliver me from the guilt. You know, there's, there's things that beset people even after they come to the Lord and they feel a shame or guilt, guilty of, of stuff in their lives that the Lord has forgiven. And what, what did Nathan say? The first thing Nathan said to him was, you're forgiven and, and your sins have been removed. But he still had this shame and this, this guilt that was on him. And he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He's really saying, I'm in a moment here where I can redirect all of this pain and all of this, this uh, weight that I've been under. I can transfer all of that into this glorious praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I will give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure, design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. They shall offer bulls on your altar. What you and I do does not matter more than who we are. The activity that we do is not nearly as important as the motivation behind the activity, the heart. Activity only from the mind and only from mental or social calculations does not impress God unless it comes from a heart that's been filled with the mercy of God and that knows what it is to be forgiven. I'm going to ask the praise team if they can come up for a closing prayer time. What you and I do does not matter more than who we are. And however we carry out our Christianity, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why am I doing this? For who am I doing this? David said, was sacrifices their system of worship? Sure. But he says, God, if you really wanted me to bring another burnt offering, you'd say so. But you don't want me to bring another animal. You don't want me to bring an animal. You want me to bring my own heart, my own life, and say, Lord, displace this guilt in me. Change my heart. Clean my heart. Blot out my transgressions. Remove all of that garbage from my life. Would you stand with me?